In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Scottish Bledders. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And we join you on a beautiful day in Scotland. How are you, Helen? I'm really well today. Having had my second vaccine jab this week, I feel up and ready to get out there. Do some exploring, Liz. Well, I'm a little bit younger, so I haven't quite got to my <laughs> second yet. But I'll, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Well, what are we going to talk about today? Well, in the week just past, we marked two very important dates, given the global challenges that we're currently facing in relation to climate change and the loss of biodiversity. So today I'm going to take as my topic a pioneer of conservation, a very important man. And that leads us through into a general discussion about explorers. Who are you going to talk about, Helen? I'm going to talk about David Livingstone, who explored through Africa. Okay, and then we'll go on to a more general discussion about how Scots contributed to early exploration. So, two important events this week. The first was Earth Day, celebrated on the 22nd of April, where more than 1 billion people across almost 200 countries now come together in a day of action, focusing on environmental challenges. The idea of Earth Day was conceived by the US Senator Gaylord Nelson in 1970, but he himself paid homage to the influence of a pioneering Scot, who led the way in ecological thinking and political activism a century earlier. That man was John Muir, and in 1988, legislation was signed in California that henceforth he would be commemorated through the creation of John Muir Day on his birth date of 21st of April, and that would take place every year. However, it wouldn't be until 25 years later, on the 175th anniversary of his birth, in 2013, the day was recognised in his native homeland of Scotland. Now, growing up in the 60s, I learned in school about Johnny Appleseed, but I didn't learn anything about a man who became venerated in his adopted country of the United States. So my topic is John Muir, and in particular, the Scottish influences on his life, and the legacy that he's left to Scotland. Muir was born the third of eight children in Dunbar in East Lothian, which is just down the coast from Edinburgh. His parents were strict Presbyterian Scots, 
the sort that would make John Knox proud. <laughs> and his father in particular was a strict disciplinarian who believed that anything that distracted from Bible studies was frivolous and punishable. In his later writings, Muir describes how by the age of 11, he had learned to recite by heart and by sore flesh all of the New Testament and most of the Old. Perhaps as a means of escape, he turned to the East Lothian landscape and spent much of his time wandering the local coastline and countryside, developing a deep love of nature. When I was a boy in Scotland, I was fond of everything that was wild. And all my life, I've been growing fonder and fonder of wild places and wild creatures. But his early years were a time of religious division in Scotland, with many, including Muir's father, believing that the Church of Scotland was insufficiently strict in faith and practice. When John was 10, his father took the decision to move the family to Fountain Lake Farm near Portage, Wisconsin to join the congregation of the Campbellian Restoration Movement, a reformed church that emphasised the word of the New Testament and stressed reliance on scriptures. Here he remained until the age of 22 he enrolled at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Always a restless spirit, he paid his own way there for several years, taking an eclectic approach to his study. This meant that he picked up various courses, but he never graduated but he did learn enough geology, botany and general science to inform his life's work. Always passionate about mechanical inventions, he first worked in factories, but an accident in his late 20s that almost blinded him left him with a new sense of purpose. God has to nearly kill us sometime to teach us lessons. His lesson was to be true to himself and to follow his dream of exploration and the study of plants. That dream was to take him all over America, from Florida to California, Sierra Nevada to Alaska, becoming one of that country's most famous and influential naturalists and historical personalities. His religious upbringing remained with him. A deeply spiritual man, he believed that God was always action, active in the creation of life and kept the natural order of the world. Everything was interrelated the essential characteristic of the science of ecology. He scorned man's conceit of himself and saw greater wonder in wild places than in man-made structures like churches and temples. Muir is often described as the father of conservation, but this isn't strictly true. While conservationists champion the use of natural resources for the benefit of the people, Muir was a preservationist, believing that wild and natural environments should be protected to remain intact, pristine lands. His enthusiasm and the spiritual quality of his eloquent writing is credited with changing the way Americans viewed their natural environment and helping them to understand the importance of wildness. He himself believed that no amount of word making will ever make a single soul to know these mountains. One day's exposure to mountains is better than a cartload of books. And so it was that in 1903, he persuaded President Theodore Roosevelt to accompany him on a visit to Yosemite, one of America's greatest natural wildernesses. They set off on their own and camped in the backcountry, where he was able to convince the president of the dangers of state mismanagement and of rampant exploitation of the valley's resources. Through his words and deeds, Muir is credited with inspiring President Roosevelt's innovative 
forest conservation programmes, including establishing Yosemite as the first national park. John Muir never forgot his roots in Scotland and he retained a strong Scottish accent till the day he died. And thankfully today he's getting the recognition that he deserves in his native land. The home he was born in in Dunbar has been restored and now looks much as it would have done when he was born there in 1838. Three floors of interactive displays provide an opportunity to accompany him on his journey through life. This unique museum is also the starting point of the John Muir Way, a 134-mile walking route that traverses central Scotland from Dunbar on the east coast to Helensborough on the Firth of Clyde, an opportunity to experience some of Scotland's remaining wild places. The John Muir Award is an environmental scheme that encourages people, particularly the young and disadvantaged, to connect with and to enjoy and care for wild places. It provides support for groups and individuals who want to get involved in the environment, challenging them to discover wild places and to conserve them. But perhaps most importantly, the John Muir Trust continues to play an important role in conserving land, nature and the environment. The Trust owns and manages around 250 square kilometres of wild and rugged land in Scotland, including some of the most spectacular hills and mountains. As the 2021 Scottish general election draws closer, the John Muir Trust doesn't endorse any particular party or candidate, but it takes a stand on major constitutional questions facing Scotland. In their words, much of our land is ecologically impoverished because of the way it's been managed over the last 250 years. It's barren, overgrazed, burned, drained, bereft of wildlife and depopulated. In recent decades, that damage has been compounded by intensified commercial development driven primarily for profit. We want to improve the land, create new employment and ensure that it contributes effectively to climate mitigation. It seems that in 2021, the life and work of John Muir has never been more relevant. Did you learn about John Muir in school, Helen? No, I was thinking to myself, Liz, as you were speaking there, that that was a name that never came up. And you're absolutely right. It's only in the 21st century that we in Scotland have had any awareness of him or the importance that he has in just as you're saying, the preservation, the conservation, the maintaining of these wonderful wildernesses, which is the habitat of so many small and rare kind of creatures throughout the world, really. Yep. No, when I started guiding and started to meet with visitors from the States, I was always surprised yes. by how much they knew about him and the reverence that he was held in, you know, the, the pioneering yes. spirit that created these national parks that are so important in the United States. You're absolutely right. I think my first awareness of him was when there was, isn't there a shop or a, a gallery in Pitlochry? Is, the John yep. Muir Trust. And and I thought, oh, I wonder how, you know, why he's as, as so important to have a, a shop here in Pitlochry. But then when I went in, I realised just how important he was and his ideology continuing today. And with all the information that we're getting about climate disasters and ecological disasters throughout the world, he was such a pioneer back, what, nearly 200 years ago, Liz? Yeah, but he also exemplifies the typical Scottish 
spirit of adventure and exploration. He was a man that was never happy unless he was out in the wild. At one point, he even built a cabin out in the wild. And what interests me is he built it in such a way that it had a stream running through his bedroom so that he could always hear the sound of the wild. And I think for many Scots, you know, brought up particularly in, in rural areas, this love of nature, this connection with the wild is so important. And that gave rise to the the spirit of exploration that resulted in so many people going out and, and finding new lands. Absolutely. And that's what Scotland's been so, we had a huge wealth of people who just wanted to go out, whether it be exploring new lands or, or seeing new things or just finding out. It's we're, we're an incredible nation, really. Yeah. And no more so than David Livingston. Well, that's right. Yeah, David Livingston, and he kind of was around about the same time as John Muir insofar as he was born in 1813, and he became one of the most famous of the European missionaries and explorers who opened up the interior of Africa during the mid-1800s. But such was his celebrity in his own day that when he died, his body was returned for burial in Westminster Abbey. And when we look at his life and look at his beginnings, that is an incredible thing. He was born in Blantyre, which is a mill village on the banks of the River Clyde, about eight miles from Glasgow. And at the age of 10, he started work at the cotton mill there at Blantyre, alongside his parents and some of his siblings. There was about 2,000 people worked in the mills there. And he worked 14 hours each day and a six-day week. But in between times, if you think there's any spare time, he was able to educate himself. He read classics he, and he explored the surrounding countryside. So a bit like John Muir, he just loved being out exploring. He went on to study medicine and theology and Greek at the University of Glasgow and then went to work in London and joined the London Missionary Society. And he was eventually ordained as a minister in 1840. And in 1841, he arrived in Cape Town, South Africa, and he had another goal in mind while in Africa. Other than simply converting locals, he also wanted to discover the source of the White Nile. And he devoted many expeditions across African landscape to this end. The source of the smaller Blue Nile had already been discovered 100 years earlier by another Scot, James Bruce. We'll maybe talk about James Bruce later. Livingston became increasingly convinced that his mission was to reach new peoples in the interior of Africa and introduce them to Christianity, as well as freeing them from slavery. It was this which inspired his explorations. He spent the first few years in South Africa getting to know the people and their cultures, learning their language, and we saw this same approach with Mary Slessor, another Scottish missionary we talked about in another episode. In 1844, he was in the village of Mabotsa in the present-day South Africa when lions attacked and killed a woman in the village. Livingston shot one of the lions, which then attacked him, badly injuring his left arm before dropping dead. And there's a really magnificent statue at his the visitor place in his birthplace of that attack, that lion attack. In 1852, he began a four-year expedition to find a route from the upper Zambezi to the coast. This seemed to be the hoped-for highway to the east coast, and a bonus for Livingston was that he could speak the native languages by now, so communications were going to be quite reasonable. 
These facts were more significant since slave traders from Angola now visited the Upper Zambezi. Livingston looked to the legitimate trade in English manufactured goods to undermine the slave trade. In 1855, he discovered a spectacular waterfall, which he named Victoria Falls. He reached the mouth of the Zambezi on the Indian Ocean in May 1856, becoming the first European to cross the width of southern Africa. He'd been sending reports of his journeys to Lake Nagami and the Zambezi to the Royal Geological Society, and these had been published. Its president was the geologist Sir Roderick Murchison, and he had received 10 letters from Livingston during his crossing of Africa. Murchison prompted the Royal Geological Society in 1855 to award Livingston its annual gold medal. Well, when Livingston returned to Britain, he was a national hero. He did many speaking tours and published his best-selling missionary travels and researches in South Africa. But Africa was calling. He returned again in 1858 and for the next five years carried out official explorations of eastern Central Africa for the British government. This was the Zambezi expedition. Sadly, his wife Mary Moffat died of malaria in 1862, a bitter blow, and by 1854 he was ordered home by the government, unimpressed with the results of his travels. Gosh, when we know about his travels now, we just think they were unimpressed. At home, Livingston published the horrors of the slave trade, securing private support for another expedition to Central Africa, searching for the Nile's source and reporting further on slavery. After nothing was heard from him for many months, Henry Stanley, an explorer and journalist, set off to find Livingston. The result was their meeting near Lake Tanganyika in October 1871, during which Stanley uttered the famous phrase, Dr Livingston, I presume? With new supplies from Stanley, Livingston continued his efforts to find the source of the Nile. His health had been poor for many years and he died on the 1st of May, 1873. And as I said, he was brought back to England and buried in Westminster Abbey. He embodied and transcended the 19th century tension between religion and science. And it was this that accounted for the scale and complexity of his career in Africa. During his incredible life, he undertook three major expeditions into the heart of Africa, travelling a phenomenal 29,000 miles, a greater distance than the circumference of the earth. And achieved this was really impressive, but doing so when almost nothing was known of the interior of Africa is astonishing. Even the very first astronauts to walk on the moon in the 1960s knew more about its surface than Victorian explorers did about the centre of Africa. It was really uncharted territory. But perhaps his greatest achievement was his contribution to the abolition of African slavery. Great Britain and the United States had already outlawed slavery by this point, but it was still rife on the Arab continent and within Africa itself. Africans would be enslaved and traded in places in the Middle East. They would also be enslaved by other Africans from different tribes within Africa. So that was his greatest achievement, and I believe he only made one convert to Christianity throughout his missionary work in Africa. But in 1929, the Scottish National Memorial to David Livingstone was opened at his birthplace Blantyre by the Duchess of York, 
we know her more readily as Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. But by 1963, there had been millions of visitors there. And in Africa, he is still commemorated in the names of two towns, Blantyre in Malawi and Livingston in Zambia, beside the Victoria Falls. That itself is quite an honour for a white explorer in Africa. So, Liz, David Livingston, probably you heard a lot more of David, David Livingston than John Muir in your school days. I did, yeah. David Livingston was held up as one of the heroes. Yeah, she certainly learned about him, but 29,000 miles. My goodness. It's crazy. When you, you think about it. And it's also the path that he took studying medicine and then using that as a way into exploration was a, a proven path. So many of the Scottish explorers followed that route. They would study medicine at university, perhaps join the Navy, and they would go out as on expeditions going out to explore no more so than into polar regions of the world. Many, many Scots were involved in in polar explorations. But it was a fact that unless you were an officer or a gentleman, you didn't always go down in the history books. There was a lot of unsung heroes that are just beginning, like Muir, to get recognition today. Well, that's right. One of the things that Livingstone did, malaria was rife in Africa all throughout his explorations, but not understood And one of the things he did, he apparently survived malaria 30 times during his life. And he even patented a medicine for it called Livingston's Rousers. Strange name. He also kept the disease at bay with a mixture of quinine and sherry. So maybe the wee gins and tonics are okay. (laughs) (laughs) But they just weren't aware that mosquitoes, of the link between mosquitoes and malaria. That was another link to John Muir, because John Muir also experienced a bad bout of malaria when he was down in Florida. One of the explorers that I, again, feel particular sympathy with, because again, he's gone unrecognised, is a man from Orkney called John Ray. And I just absolutely love Stromness in Orkney, which is where he came from. And many explorers left from here because life was hard here. You know, it was hard to to get a living from the land. And so they would go off, particularly with the Hudson Bay Company. And John Ray was, again, a Scottish surgeon born in the same year, 1813, as David Livingston. His explorations were in the region of northern Canada. He was actually the first to find the Northwest Passage. But previously, in 1854, there had been a fated expedition called the Franklin Expedition, where they had gone missing. And so several expeditions were sent out to try and find them. And Ray, possibly because he came from from Orkney, was known for his skill at hunting, his boat handling, but particularly for being able to establish a good rapport with the the natives. And the local Inuit told him a story which um, indicated that 35 to 40 white men had died of starvation. And they were able to show him different belongings to the men that indicated that it was the Franklin expedition. But worse than that, they told him stories of cannibalism. And when Ray came back and reported these back home, the wife of Franklin was absolutely horrified and she set out to discredit him. And so in his lifetime, he never, ever got the recognition that he deserved. He wasn't knighted. He didn't get a place in Westminster Abbey like David Livingston did. But through time, there's been such a campaign to have him recognised that he now has a little plaque in Westminster Abbey and he has a statue in Stromness in his local Orkney. Ah, and you know, another Orkney native, William Balfour Blakey, 
was an explorer and he was born in Kirkwall in Orkney and he studied medicine at Edinburgh University. He was a surgeon, a naturalist, and he went, you know, you mentioned sailing. Well, he went, he went on board a schooner and then when the captain died, he took over the captaincy of the schooner and eventually he created a settlement. He was looking for the, at the Niger and the Benue rivers and where they joined and he created a settlement there and within five years he'd opened up the navigation on the Niger, built roads, collated a native vocabulary, translated parts of the Bible and prayer book into Hausa. So I just find it extraordinary that Orkney at that time in the, the early 1800s was a very far distant place even from mainland Scotland and that's two people heading out into the wilds from there. It's amazing. And it wasn't just the men. I mean, you've already spoken about oh. some of the, the, the women through um, your, your lady that set up the Japanese gardens. Yes, um, Ella Christie. Many... Ella Christie. Ella Christie. Yes. And then Mary Slessor. But there was another one um, which intrigues me, Margaret Penny, because Margaret Penny was married to an explorer and she accompanied him as he went out on expeditions to Baffin Island in Canada. He went on whaling expeditions and she sailed from Aberdeen on the whaling ship the Lady Franklin in August 1857, named after Lady Franklin, who had been the wife of the Franklin of the Franklin expedition. But what I like most about her was that when she returned to Aberdeen, she was, of course, a celebrity because she had been living with the Inuit people. And when they, when she came back at the end of the expedition, she was recognised by the Aberdeen Arctic Company, um, who gave her a silver tea service because she had entertained the Eskimo bells to tea on board the ship. So you just think about it. She goes out and she travels um, in all these hostile conditions and she comes back and they give her a silver tea service. Amazing. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. And you know, the, there's another lady, Isabel Wiley Hutchison, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, well, most of the 1900s, she decided to explore, she came from West Lothian, decided to explore the lands of the Arctic, and she wandered at will around Iceland and Greenland, staying with local people and immersing her in their culture. Then she went over to Alaska, and I like this, that she sailed and explored around there with the help of rugged fur trappers and traders who became lifelong friends. She loved botany and adventure, and she travelled on impulse, following her heart, and she was likely to be the first woman to cross from Alaska to Arctic Canada at demarcation point. I mean, I just think these people and the times that they were travelling is unbelievable. And then one other one, Liz, I must tell you this one, I think this is very funny. Uh, Sir John Murray, who was, again, the, the second half of the 1800s. He helped to, sur- to survey many thousands of miles of oceans using weighted hemp ropes to plumb the deepest parts of the sea and discovering a wealth of marine creatures that were new to science. And he photographed the Antarctic icebergs for the first time. But the bit I really like was that they would cruise around and their perpetual astonishment of what they were finding was mimicked by a parrot that they'd acquired in Madeira <laughs> who would regularly exclaim what? 2,000 fathoms and no bottom? <laughs> so I just, I just think that's lovely. But he became known as, uh, Sir John Murray became known as the father of oceanography. 
Yeah, yes, I have heard of him. And some of the names that they got as well, I mean, we've got Robert Fortune. Now, you like him. Have you heard of Robert Fortune? Oh, right, you tell like me about him, him. Helen, no, because right. he was best known for introducing tea to Britain. Oh, lovely. Right? So we like our, yes. our cuppa, you know, being yes. Scottish players, we like our cup of tea. But um, that doesn't sound much. But what he had to do was to smuggle the tea plants out of China disguised as a Chinaman. Oh. <laughs> and then once he got them back home, he planted them and we got the first beginning, the beginnings of um, the tea that we've been talking about that, that grows in Scotland. Yeah. And another name that's got to be reckoned with is Bonaventure Hepburn. Now, Bonaventure wasn't born Bonaventure. He was born simple James Hepburn, maybe even Jimmy. But (laughs) he he lived in the, the 16th century and he was a Catholic linguist um, who was a biblical commentator and he eventually ended up with the post of Keeper of Oriental Books and Manuscripts at the Vatican. So I think oh. the name Bonaventure probably went down better at the ba- Vatican than it, it than did. He, than um, he, Jimmy. <laughs> than he, Jimmy, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that we talked about Ella Christie, but you know, we've talked about them, them living in the silver tea set that one of your other explorers was was gifted Margaret with Aberdeen. Penny. Yes. Yep. Well, well, apparently Ella Christie carried trunks of evening dresses around in her travels, just in case a formal occasion presented itself. <laughs> well, as you do, Helen, as you do. <laughs> as you do. But then one that I think we've all heard of Bartholomew's maps, the Edinburgh it's map easy to, maker. Easy for you to say. <laughs> John George Bartholomew. And he's dreaming up, that he's credited with dreaming up the name Antarctica, meaning Right. The opposite, the opposite of the of Arctic, but he was both a visionary and a well-connected businessman, passionate about the benefits of geographical knowledge, and he was one of the co-founders of the Scottish Geographical Society. I mean, I think we've got been listing through a whole list of these wonderful people, all around well, about the same time, the eighteen hundreds. I just have to one, end with one who had such an interesting life, Alexander Cumming, Sir Alexander Cumming, to be correct, um, who was a Scottish adventurer to North America. But in 1729, he was supposedly learned by a dream that his wife had that told him that he had to undertake a voyage to America. And when he got there, he was visiting the Cherokee Mountains on the border between South Carolina and Virginia. And he befriended the chiefs of the Cherokee Nation there. But not just that, he brought seven chiefs back with him in 1730 and introduced them to George II at the Royal Chapel at Windsor. (laughs) Now, when they arrived and they were presented, what they did was to lay down before at the feet of the king, they laid down four scalps to show their superiority over their end. I can just picture that, the scalps lying on the floor of Windsor Chapel. Anyway, Alexander Cumming was in in later times discredited because he was accused of having defrauded settlers of large sums of money. So he fell on hard times and poverty and turning to, to debt. And so when he was in debt, he turned to alchemy and attempted experiments to transmute metals into gold. Um, But he ended up in prison and uh, ended up a debtor and whatever. But it was an interesting life from uh, dreams to Cherokee chiefs to alchemy. Quite a journey. (laughs) Quite fantastic. And Liz, one that we cannot not mention, Mungo Park. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. He, Another he was, one you learn of in school. Yeah, that's right. And he was the end of the 1700s, early 1800s. He was quite young when he died, uh, but he was exploring again. It was the Niger. But he thought he believed in traveling light. And that's what we're always being taught nowadays when we go traveling. Travel light. Don't have all these huge suitcases. But full of evening dresses. I never had that anyway, no, Helen. I'm not the lady that you are. But. Oh, of course. Well, I, I always have my evening dress with me. But and your pearls. I, oh, definitely the pearls. Never go anywhere without the pearls. But you know, he would just travel with a compass, a pocket sextant, and whatever whatever else he needed. But kind of what, what would go in a rucksack on his back. A bit like what, a Rick Steves of his day. A Rick Steves of his day. But what I find was quite fascinating was that he was on one of his, really his last expedition. Um, it was a fairly tragic one. Only 11 made it to the Niger, followed by another six. But the end came in the rapids, um, in the bus, Busa Rapids in Nigeria, Nigeria Park. He, the remaining people were drowned. Uh, possibly after being attacked, but it took another six years before details of their deaths filtered out of Africa. So you can just yeah, was... imagine the, the depth of the the interior that they were in there, six years for word to get back that there had been a tragedy. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an understatement to say it was a bit of a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was pretty tragic. Yeah, well, it's very Scottish. Remember, if, some, if, something's, if something's really excellent, it's just not bad. <laughs> a bit of a tragedy, yeah. exactly. Okay, well, Helen, we could go on for literally hours. We could go into space and, you know, the contemporary uh, explorers. We've got some Scots that have ended up in space, maybe for a future episode. But for this could... one, we must draw it to a close. And uh, our word of the week. What's your word of the week, Helen? Well, I was just thinking about all these explorers going into um, the depths of uncharted territories, whether it be the Antarctic, the Arctic or Central Africa. Just thinking, they weren't a feart. They weren't a feart means they weren't at all frightened. Nothing scared them. So feart, to be frightened. Is my I suppose word. from that you get, if you are scared of everything, you're a big fierty. A big fierty. And they weren't big fierty. Some of them might have been big, but they were not fierties. Yeah, I think the spiders would have made me fiert. I wouldn't have been an explorer there. <laughs> my word is taken thinking about John Muir and thinking about the John Muir Way and going out for a little walk along the John Muir Way. We would call a little walk a wee donner, a wee donder. Now, do you call it Donner or Donder, Helen? I would tend to say Donder, but of course I'm so much posher than you, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. A wee Donner, a wee, a wee stroll or amble um, along a walk. So that's it for another week. We hope you've enjoyed this one. Remember, as always, you can give us ideas for future episodes. And we will look forward to hearing from you. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.